Hello, and welcome back to the Self Healer Soundboard. Today's episode will be airing on Sunday, which happens to be Father's Day here in the United States. So we created an episode that aired on Mother's Day on the mother wound, and we specifically have gotten a lot of requests to do the same thing here for the father's wound on Father's Day. So you have asked, and here we are delivering. So I think a really great place to start um, is to talk about and pulling back a little bit before we even go into relationship with fathers, really honoring that some of us might, might not have had fathers present. I think we can understand or begin to understand this conversation from an energetic perspective, really honoring that inside each of us, we have masculine energy and we have feminine energy. And whereas when we spoke about the mother wound, we really explored the feminine energy being connected to the self, to the intuition, to our deeper emotions. Masculine energy really represents the doing, the assertiveness, the standing confidently in our wants and needs and embodying that presence in the world. So we're hopeful, or I'm hopeful that really extending this conversation really to include all of us, understanding that even those of us who grew up without fathers present, we're likely impacted in this deeper, more energetic way. So of course, beginning the conversation there um, from an energetic perspective and really beginning to explore how those early relationships dynamics, whether the human was present or not, continues to impact us as we grow and as we, of course, heal. And further than that human being present or not, understanding that context of energy and the masculine and feminine goes back to the same thing we shared on the Mother Wound podcast, that while we're using the word father, that may not mean your birth father. It may not even mean a male that acted as a father in your life. For me, when we spoke of the mother wound, I know there was a whole plethora of women or humans in my life that embodied that mothering, nurturing energy and nature. So going back in time, and I've actually been thinking about my early relationship with my dad a lot recently, um, really coming to the awareness that for me in particular, my dad was the present caregiver. And in very many ways, I had a more consistent relationship with my dad than I did with my mom, who those of you who've listened to me speak of my mom, uh, my mom who was chronically ill and given different cultural ideas on parenting, my mom really outside of making sure that my physical needs were met, um, she really wasn't available to me emotionally. Um, for those of you who tuned into the episode where we talked about play, uh, my mom wasn't the play parent at all. That was actually my dad's designated job. So as I age, I'm really starting to realize how impactful my relationship with my dad has always been because he was the human who was there, um, who was present, and who was engaging with me in all of these different contexts outside of, of course, providing care for me when my mom wasn't available to do that, but being the person who embodied this idea of play and creativity and this one particular picture comes to mind um, where I must have been dressing my dad up and putting paint all over his face. And I had pink tails in his hair and he was making this kind of monster face into the camera. Um, and for me, that's what I think about now, how often that was the case. And then really starting to understand for me how much what my dad modeled in terms of how he embodied his masculine energy and how much I see remnants of 
similarities, again, because of how pivotal and how impactful and how consistent my relationship with my dad, at least, has always been. It continues to be so interesting to me, and Nicole, how you and I have, we just come from such different places and such different backgrounds. And as you're sharing that, you know, your father being the one present with you is then what translated into having that most impactful relationship. And when I look at both of my parents, I I would say that my dad's impact on me actually seems more significant and more profound than my mother's, which was ironic because he was actually the one that left and, you know, chose to abandon, chose to leave his family. Um, he wasn't really there when I was five, six, seven. He was a truck driver, always on the road. And then by eight, he was actually gone. And I didn't hear from him for a couple of years later, though it's in that absence that I romanticized and created so in such a detailed way, kind of an idea in my mind of what that relationship was or what I thought it was or what I had hoped that it could be. So then what actually impacted me the most was not an actual relationship that was in front of me present. My mother was also, you know, working two, three, four jobs, making ends meet for these three kids at home. So she also wasn't there. Her presence was not around. And it's also the absence of her presence that impacted me the most, though it was the longing and the chasing that I specifically remember being a little girl, specifically wanting their dad, wanting this father figure, wanting that sort of sense of security and also really wanting his approval. And I always remember my mom consistently telling me, even as a young child, Jenna, absence makes the heart grow fonder. And his absence, you know, to her, she was perturbed, had her own feelings about it, of course, and rightfully so. Though any time that I would long for him or I would write about him, I'd write poetry as a child. I wrote him a, a long poem that starts with, Daddy, why did you leave me? What did I do? I'm sorry if I ever disappointed you. And I remember being eight or nine, it's so proud of this, you know, piece of poetry that I'd written. And I showed it to my best friend at the time. And she said back to me, you know, she's very ruthless, always very raw, even as a, as a child and said, you know, Jenna, it's great, but it's total bull. She's like, this was never your father. Like you're painting him as a knight in shining armor. And I remember getting really defensive though, Olivia, if you ever listen to this or it comes into your ethers, thank you. Because you were and had always been that friend that would tell me the truth. And my defensiveness to you and that comment still sits with me so greatly now at age 35 because you were so right, because I knew deep in my heart that I had painted him into this night of shining armor of what I wanted and what I longed for versus the reality that was actually in front of me, which was his absence. And I love that, you know, what you're describing is in this idealized, imagined version Right. I think what I heard at least is there was this desire for this security. Right. So in absence, we feel abandoned. We feel hurt. We could really say we feel insecure, unsafe. And so hearing kind of this idea of longing for security, very interestingly, while my dad was physically present, was there, like I said, most consistently there in all of these different contexts, there was an underlying lack of security and remains to this day in, in my dad, um, very fear-based. Um, my dad, in a lot of ways, um, was reactive, was always kind of alerting the family. And this was really coincided with the ever-present stress of my household. And again, for those of you who have listened to me speak, um, having a mother who was chronically ill and a sister who had her own health concerns 
there was my family motto, always something happening. So along that kind of the next railway was this idea that in the embodiment of that trauma, when we don't feel safe and when we are physically, you know, fearful that someone we love could, could die, something bad could happen. There's a lack of that security. And I saw that so present though. I couldn't have given words to it in my childhood, but that was so present in my dad and is till this day, this fear. My dad is always waiting to be victimized, the next person to take advantage of him. And up until this day, the running family joke is someone's always taking advantage of my dad. He's always the victim of a, a identity fraud scam. And he is very much that hypervigilant being. So again, while my dad was physically present, right, logically, I think for some of us offering the security that we want he was embodying that presence from a very fearful based place. And it would come out in his actions um, and it would come out in his language and his beliefs where he quite literally is always waiting for the next shoe to drop. And, and we became aware of that. So before very long, of course, that security was embodied in me as a lack of security. Very similarly, right? I was scanning, fearful, waiting for the next person that was going to take advantage of me, having this really deep-rooted belief that I wasn't safe in the world. I wasn't safe in my physical body because here I had lived the experience of two adult humans who, you know, might meet their demise physically. And I wasn't safe in the world at large because this is what I heard and this is what I felt in the embodied presence of my dad. It's fascinating to me even as I'm listening to you speak and for anyone who is listening and or watching right now, take a moment to tune into your own body and your own physical self right now and just notice how you feel. Notice what's physically there for you. I See, I have a watch on that tells me my heart rate. My heart rate is 105 right now. <laughs> and it usually sits at around 55, 60 is ideal. And as you're speaking about that fear and that fear-based place, you know, all of that trauma, those experiences that lives in our body, right? As Nietzsche said, there is more wisdom in your body than in your greatest philosophy. And I say that quote over and over, even just to myself, because when we take a moment to pause and drop into our body and to witness it, we can start to actually feel and witness where those experiences live in us. As Nicole is sharing about, you know, that fear and that lack of security, my chest is getting super tight. I'm getting super hot over here. Like, oh my gosh, Jenny, you're, you're recording. Keep it together. <laughs> like, you're good. And I recognize that that comes from, you know, this little Jenna that was hiding out in hotels away from my father who was, you know, listening to my mom shriek every time a car turned the corner because she was so petrified that it would be my dad and that my dad was going to show up and physically harm us. There was a lot of time spent, you know, actually staying in undisclosed locations, you know, having protective services around us, not allowing my dad to come near because there was a, a real and genuine fear there on my mother's part of what would come to be. And we're speaking about a time when, you know, he was in active addiction and he was drinking, he was addicted to so many painkillers, had like six different dentists, doctors, you name it. So he wasn't in a present conscious state. He, he, the person I had known him as or hoped he would be, wasn't actually there. So I also had this contradiction of still longing for this mythical person called my dad, while also in this very same moment, going through this really wild 
physical fear and true emotional fear for my own safety of this person. And even as we're sitting here now, you know, 20, 30 years later, I can still feel my heart rate start to rise. I mean, my heart rate almost doubled just listening to you speak because my body is still there and is holding on to that memory and holding on to that emotion, even if my mind has, you know, long pushed it down or tried to forget it. I love that you're bringing that up, Jenna. And what's become so clear to me in in the past, you know, five, 10 years is how much my body was remembering this in absence of a story that made sense. And what I mean when I say this is I like to think of, you know, a lot of what I experience is like the hidden or the unknown because, right, my dad, like I keep saying, was there. There wasn't fear. My dad wasn't running us around and and trying to actively harm us. So I didn't necessarily have language for why I had fear baked into my being for as long as I can remember. I mean, I've shared stories of memories of being the little girl hiding under tables awake at night, any bump. And I lived in the city. So there was a lot of bumps and sirens and, you know, very active things happening. And and the clench, I can almost feel my body clench and laying there at night in this fear, fear cycles. Like fear is the only word that keeps coming up. And again, without the language, my whole family was present. Nothing bad was necessarily happening. I couldn't make sense of why my body had this reaction so ingrained in it and why I saw then present in my 20s, I mean, the embodiment of fear. And I referenced that time period because for me, that was when it was near debilitating. This anxiety I lived with my whole life was now turning into one panic attack after another. And talk about a disempowered state, a lack of security. This embodiment of the world is actually overwhelming me. And at that point, of course, I didn't have the understanding of all of the different ways that the dynamics that were present in my home translated into my body because I couldn't make sense of it because logically, right, I had the security or so I thought, and I couldn't make sense of why my body didn't reflect that. So I think about that a lot in all of the different ways, like you're saying, that we can be carrying the effects of our past And we might not necessarily have the story or have the language to make sense of it. And that, again, is why I I talk so readily and freely, you know, even at times when my dad would like me not to be doing this um, about my childhood, about these experiences that I now very much understand have carried a really great impact with the hope that for someone out there listening, right, who doesn't necessarily have the story that makes sense to understand all of the different ways that we might have had these figures, these father figures, these you know energetic figures and relationships present. But again, they might have translated to this really deep-rooted lack of security or, or fear. And even if you don't have those memories, you don't have that articulation or that story readily available to give language to the past That's why we offer to pay attention to your body. It still will show up now if you begin to actually witness and peel back those layers and observe your thoughts as they come by, observe your heart rate when it rises, observe your physical being and how it feels in different scenarios, in different circumstances, in different experiences, how it responds to different thoughts that you have. That is your access to all of the wisdom that lives within your body. It's here to show you now what you may have long forgotten then. And why it's important to pay attention is because each of those things, each of those experiences, 
Every experience of my childhood now gives me an opportunity to unlock and learn something of, you know, why I respond that way. Maybe I can learn a habit or a pattern that I wasn't able to see. Or maybe now I'm able to reframe and can see an opportunity where I can, instead of being disempowered and afraid, I can now grab little Jenna's hand, allow her to know she's safe and be the parent that she didn't ever get or get the care that she didn't ever receive. And I've shared once on one podcast episode about these when we have knives in the kitchen here. And a lot of I got a lot of feedback from people with this and a lot of questions. So what I was sharing is that, you know, even now, if I walk through our kitchen and a butcher knife is out or something sharp is out, I will always go and take it and I will place it in the sink. And I have this completely irrational fear that comes in immediately of just, you know, oh my gosh, what if someone broke in? What if something happened? Like this is a weapon. This is going to cause harm. And I watch fear creep right into my body. So I've started putting them in the sink. And some of the questions that I got back from people were, you know, asking what happens in that process. If I still am sort of succumbing to that fear when I go and I have that action and when I go and, you know, take the knife that's on the counter that's causing me fear and I go and place it in the sink to make myself feel better. I also reframe. I use it as an active conscious moment to allow myself to teach myself that I am safe now, that that is a reaction from the past and I can reframe in the very present. So any opportunity where you begin to notice, you know, your heart rate coming up, your chest beginning to clench or your palms getting sweaty in response to something, the moment you're conscious to that and mindful of it happening is the same moment that you can then choose to reframe. Even now to this day, we'll be laying in bed at night. And as a child, when I would lay in bed at night, I was on the corner of the house and anytime headlights would shine through the window and turn the corner, I could hear a car. I would lay stiff as a board. And I made up in my mind that every car driving by had some video of the outline of my body laying in bed. And they knew that if I moved, like they would come in and attack. That's how irrational it got, but that was very real for me. So even now I can see 20, 30 years later, I will still be laying in bed, you know, stiff as a board, and I'll be afraid someone's walking down the hall that doesn't live here or that someone's coming to break in and I watch my body freeze. And sometimes it breaks my heart a little for a moment. Other times it makes me giggle a little because I can reframe it to be empowering and to see just how much my body is holding on to and carrying a past environment that is no longer here. And until I become conscious and aware of that happening, then that past environment, that fear-based state, my body being in fight or flight, that physiological sensation, all of the hormones and stress and cortisol running through my body, that is all still happening without my awareness. And when I choose to be aware of it, I can reframe it. I can be safe in the moment and I can allow my body to actually return to a stable baseline, to return to homeostasis, to get my heart rate back down to 55 or 60 versus 120, like I'm pretty sure it is right now. And I think kind of I want to offer for all of those of you out there that sometimes this awareness begins before we can tune in and have the connection with our body, because that's what we have to have first. We have to be connected with our body and our heart rate and begin to feel our palms sweaty. And my journey of the impact of my dad actually began after that point with how I was dealing with my fear. And what I came to notice, very similar to patterns I see in my dad, is that 
when a lot of us and when my dad and when myself, when we're scared, we do two things. We, we shift into doing mode, hyper doing mode. I can't sit still. My dad is the, the man who tinkers around the house, who's always rearranging the cabinets. He always needs a project. He never sits still. I mean, the man is upwards of, you know, 85 years old and is still going, going, going. And he's trying in those endless actions to control. So for me, I see this, this vein of that same behaviors, this, and again, you've heard me probably reference myself as an achiever, an overachiever, right? Shifting into that doing mode and what I come to realize, and that's a great place for me to start becoming aware. And again, it's before I'm even able to connect with my body. Sometimes it's when I notice myself trying to control the environment around me or being unable to sit still, feeling like I'm crawling out of my skin and opening up five different projects in the home and then getting mad when no one else is doing them with me. So some of us, right, kind of on the tail end, then can walk our way back and then begin to say, okay, Nicole, if I do notice this hyper-focus on control or on the environment or needing things to be in the spaces that I need them to be, I can maybe tune into that came from a, a scared place, an insecurity. And then I can begin to explore what might have come up then. And of course, I'm sharing this as I continue to build that active connection with my body so that over time, in real time, I can tune into that fear before I shift into the reaction. But a lot of us out there, when we are trying to control, when we are endlessly doing and we can't just stop and be, and again, all of this is a marker of that masculine energy. Some of it is that overcompensation because we don't feel secure just to be, just to let the world happen around us. And instead we attempt to control and we attempt to make things in the way that we imagine will keep us the safest. While we're both sharing our personal experiences and speaking of these masculine and feminine energies, I definitely want to make a point and highlight that we're not speaking of one or the other as good or bad. Nothing about this is moral. There's nothing on a hierarchy. We, in fact, need both. And to embody both is, is whole. It's pinging off of one another that creates even who we are as humans. So while we're talking about, you know, that taking control or our own experiences with our own fathers and that masculine, please do hear that the masculine is also the greatest complement to that feminine energy and vice versa. And yes, we are specifically using masculine and feminine because of the context of those energies. So for the sake of this conversation and making it as cohesive as we can, that is why we are speaking of both of those energies. And I think we can see in the world today, we are collectively shifting out of a, a masculine energy era. And we're very much seeing as a collective where there is a mass embodiment, a refocus now on being, of exuding, of actually embodying this more, I guess, a, more of a gentle nature or a more of an introspective, more nurturing nature. And when I say that, it doesn't mean, oh, well, the masculine energy doesn't have that, so it's awful. We'll know that that's why we are here where we are now. We've been so heavy on one end that we've kind of reached a tipping point where now the next thing to naturally come in for the world, for our universe, is that nurture, is that gentleness, it is that mothering nature. And while we're not assigning that mothering nature or that feminine energy necessarily to a gender, we are speaking of it as the opposite of the masculine and of 
the greatest compliment really to the masculine. It's actually, I could go even further to say it's a necessary component of the foundation that is needed for us to be intuitively connected, connected to our essence. Unless we feel safe and secure, and the way we feel safe and secure is by having our needs consistently met. If that doesn't happen, we don't have that foundation to turn within, to you know, be able to tap that inner creativity or that inner nurture or our feelings in general because we don't feel safe. We lack safety. So the masculine energy is actually the embodiment of the assertiveness needed to speak one's truth, which often involves asserting one's needs and creating the space in our lives and our relationship for those needs to be met. And I want to contrast assertiveness with aggression. And I think a lot of us, you know, and me, myself included, when we didn't have a model of a, a masculine energy, whomever that might have been from in our earliest relationships, who embodied that calm, assertive way to state my need and to get it met consistently time and time again, some of us, we do one of two things, and I've seen both in myself. We either try to get our needs met passive aggressively by dropping clues, by saying snarky comments. I still do that to this day, right? I try to urge people to create in a very controlling way my needs being met, never really saying it directly, never really saying it assertively. Or as I try to practice being assertive, I kind of go in the other direction and I sometimes am downright aggressive where I'm demanding. And if I've set a need and you don't meet it, I'm now upset and I'm angry with you. And again, if I look back to my dad and if I begin to explore how many of my dad's needs have been met, I can't imagine very many um, my dad, again, part of a system that was very codependent that didn't allow the space for individuals to have their needs met over time became very angry. And in addition to my dad loving his snarky comments where he likes to make jokes and you know what he means, my dad can explode in a very aggressive way because all of this anger and resentment is bubbled up to the surface. And I remember times in childhood where there would be incredible anger and I would be, again, very fearful. So similarly, as I grow and I age and I try to, you know, I came to the awareness that I'm not someone who knows how to assertively allow my needs to be communicated directly and therefore allowing myself to meet them. I still have that remnants of that aggression in me and that bubbling anger that comes to the surface, you know, if and when the person that I expect to hold space for me isn't able to in that moment. So going back to this idea of right, the masculine and the feminine, how they go together, to be connected to our essence, we need that foundation of safety. And to, to create that safety, we need to create the space for our needs to be met. And that masculine energy and how that was embodied and modeled to us in our earliest relationships is likely going to impact us. So we might grow up to be the adult who doesn't know our needs, tries to get a man passively, aggressively, and then if it happens long enough or they're not met, explodes aggressively out at the world, exactly as I continue to see in moments in myself. There's a lot of power and a lot of insight in looking at where you come from. And for many of you who don't have memories of your childhood, you're not in touch with your parents or caregivers, that's okay. You can look at the general environment of what childhood was like for you. I see my father's behavior when he was around in my life as a young child and 
Now I reflect back as an adult, knowing when he was a child, he was beaten. He was abused. He was bullied. He was neglected. He was never emotionally met with his needs. He wasn't nurtured in that way. So what do I see? The very same explosion, the very same behavior done onto his children. Now, not because he's an awful, malicious man. I think that my father's heart is incredibly huge and incredibly huge in a sense that too, that incredibly huge heart didn't ever get received with the love that it deserved. And now as, you know, 65, 66 years old, I just opened a message from him actually from a couple of weeks ago that says he's aware now. He said, I can see I've gone back and I still do in the same cycles. He said, it didn't matter if I was 16, Jenna, or I was 66. Anyone who came into my life and who loved me, who had the same amount of love for me that I could give to them, I abused them. I manipulated them. I pushed them away. He can see that now, and he is not at a place of self-forgiveness. I don't know if he will get there especially now with Jake, my brother, dying seven months ago, you know, dying from active addiction after a relapse over seven years. Well, who did we grow up seeing in active addiction? Who did Jake always want to be exactly like? It was my father. And we repeat what we know until we choose to become conscious, to be mindful, to be willing to have the courage to look at our habits, to look at our patterns. So a lot of love and compassion and really a lot of celebration and acknowledgement for all of the parents and the caregivers who are here listening, whether you're a mom, dad, however you identify yourself as a caregiver, I really honor you and I really celebrate you for not turning off this podcast episode, for being willing to listen. And even if you've been judging or critiquing or shaming yourself along the way, you're still here leaning in and being willing to look. That is how we create a new generation. That's how you actually end a cycle so that you don't do the same unto your children. I'm very clear that if I did not choose to do this work, to look at my habits, to look at my patterns, to be loving and kind to myself in the process, I would be passing on the same environment to my children if I had them. All of us are only ever repeating what we know, and what we know is only ever going to be the environment that we came from until we choose to do things like be here and be present and listen and lean in and really have the courage to look at ourselves and our habitual patterns and put the shaming and the judging and the critiquing at least in the backseat or in the passenger seat and be able to offer ourselves compassion while we look along the way. So a huge thank you and shout out and acknowledgement to everyone who is here listening and is willing to look at themselves and to peel back those layers. And instead of creating this consistent environment of shame, we're really all here united as a humanity and as one and as one collective who Yes, we have all different details of our day-to-day lives, but we are all sharing one massive human experience together. And it's your it's your courage being here, listening, sharing with us, giving us your feedback and comments and stories and your own experiences that is really illuminating and allowing so many people to continue stepping forward on their own path of healing, including ourselves.
when I when I hear you say compassion, I, I really want to honor the role of you know compassion and really understanding, like you're you're beautifully saying, Jenna, that you know we are so impacted by all of the relationships, whether or not they were present actively in our life or not, of all of the generations that came before. And one of the gifts of that for many of us is then being able to extend that understanding and that compassion to those same caregivers. So very much like you were describing your dad, um, my dad, I understand, you know, has a very huge heart. His very favorite family, his very favorite motto is family is everything. And I know in his heart, he truly believes that to be the case. I know where that comes from in his own childhood, where he didn't feel connected, safe, secure with his brothers in particular, where there was, you know, bullying and, and other actions that made my dad feel fearful and feel insecure. So his best attempt at not at breaking that cycle, at creating now a family with my siblings that didn't have that environment became that focus. Family is everything. And there was this moment that was really illuminated for me when my dad was actually going in for a medical procedure. It was my dad this time, not my mom. Um, later in life, it was only a couple of years ago, he was getting um, an aneurysm repaired in his in his belly. And my mom and myself and my sister were all around his bedside before he was getting ready to go into surgery. And he was starting to open up um, and he was starting to share a little bit about this childhood experience and never really feeling connected to his brothers or my uncles in particular. And as he was sharing that experience, you know, coming from a very emotional place and he became tearful. And my mom looked at him and said, why are you crying, Vince? And I remember being so blown away by that. I mean, first of all, because I'm, I, if, if you were listening, my thought was, well, he's crying because he's upset. This was a very painful experience that, you know, and this was really impactful because it was one of the very few times that I saw my dad sharing this emotion so freely. And then I was quickly struck by my mom's response. And again, of no fault of my mom's own, uh, my mom, who was disconnected from her own emotions and her own experiences, wasn't able to be empathetic or to understand why my dad might have been so upset in that moment. So then if I sit there and I realize that by that point they were married 45 years, and if I replay 45 years of not having right this emotional support in your core primary relationship, I can, again, understand my dad a little bit deeper. I can understand that from this very well-intentioned, loving, emotional place, because Regardless of how you identify in terms of gender, we all have emotions. They're a core universal human experience. And again, seeing my dad time and time again, not having this outlet, now I can understand all of these different ways it came out as reactivity, as control, as this hyper-focus on all of the people that are going to take advantage of me. And I can understand it again, coming from that core wounding of a human who, who before he even met my mom in his family relationship, didn't have that emotional space, didn't have that support and compensated, adapted just like all of us. That brings up such a good point as you're sharing and reminds me of a, a story that my father shared with me somewhat recently, who my dad is a very, both of my parents are just very spiritual, very very connected to to nature, to this greater existence is the best way I can describe it. You know, they weren't very present, didn't really do all of the, the parenting <laughs> things that I needed, though. There is something very powerful and very spiritual that 
is within both me and my brothers and, and both of my parents. And my father shared with me this experience he had when he was a young boy and he was sitting on his mother's lap. And my dad is very connected. He sees people's energy as attuned to people's energy and always has been that way. And he shared with his mom that when he saw people, he saw different colored flames around certain people. He saw certain people that had a glow around them. And and put, keep an open mind as you're listening to this. We just did an episode <laughs> on spiritual awakenings and had to describe what woo-woo was to people because I get that that can sound really out there. So just try this on. This was his actual experience. So he would see this or he'd see certain people that would have an aura or colors around them. And he shared this with his mother and his mom, you know, rocked him and cried and held him so tightly and had a really beautiful connection with him. And the first thing she said to him as she held him and wept, she said, Jimmy, do not ever repeat this again. Do not ever repeat this to your father. And it was specific not to repeat this to his father. And that was been that would have been back in what, 55, 60, sometime in the 60s. So, and my dad comes from a you know, a lot of generations of people, they were at war. They were in the armed forces, whether it was the army or the Navy. He, we have a lineage of those who have served our nation. So there very much was a, a rigid control and rigid structure. And I just want to acknowledge that as you're speaking, I realize for the masculine energy or for men now, it is it is a new time to even be accepting or open to allowing in any of what we're calling this feminine energy or that nurturing or that being, because that was always frowned upon and shamed upon. You know, men don't cry. Boys don't cry. Toughen up. That's what so many of our parents and their parents heard. So while I'm speaking of and thinking of my father now, who's in his 60s, I'm also really aware that he grew up in a time where it was not okay to embody anything other than that rigid control or structure. It was frowned upon in society and it was shamed. And what do we do when we're frowned upon or shamed in society or not going to be accepted? Well, we betray our true selves. We betray our true nature because instinctively we need to stay connected to the whole. It is life or death to our physical bodies if we're going to go out on our own and you know be willing to be misunderstood or embody something that's not accepted by society. So to all the fathers out there, to all the father figures, and to all of you out there listening is we begin to explore for ourselves, right? The role of masculine energy, our ability to action, to assertively make sure that our needs are getting met consistently enough that we feel safe to then drop back and embody that softer, that feminine, that intuition, and allow ourselves just to be in the essence of who we are. That is the healing of the father wound. And so regardless of if today, you know, things are coming up as you're exploring your actual relationship with these father figures or fathers or humans in your life, or whether or not you're listening and just exploring for yourself, um, your own masculine energy, its presence in your life. And of course, as you heal to be able to embody all of you, the masculine, the feminine and everything in between. And as always, we thank all of you for listening. Those of you who are tuning in um, on our YouTube channel, we welcome 
any and all comments. We'd love to hear from you, what's coming up for you as you're hearing us explore the father wound, as you're exploring your own father wound in this Father's Day that is very near upon us. And of course, we're always listening to any and all topics that you want to hear more of. This is where this exact episode came from. And as always, thank you for tuning in, and we look forward to continuing this conversation with you during next episode.